anyone familiar with abstract expressionism would basically tell you what I'm about to tell you. That this art movement was one where all the insiders or practitioners were more closely involved than many other art movements, though of course there are exceptions. Most ABEX artists were friends, working together, collaborating, bouncing ideas off of one another. Such close confines also make for some serious rivalries, too. But there were other artists who were more intimately involved with one another in their artistic process. They were married or were lovers. Such is the case with both Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning, who were the subjects of our last episode. Both of these men married women who were incredible artists in their own right. Interestingly, and sadly, when these two spouses are mentioned, it's very rare that we are treated to sincere commentary just about their works of art. More often than not, we are instead given explanations of how these women measure up to their admittedly more famous husbands, and are relegated either to a supporting role or just plain seen as not good enough in comparison. Why is it that such talented women continue to have their posthumous careers and stories marked and shaped by their husbands? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless, but the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. And today we are continuing our series on great rivalries in art history with the unfortunate, unofficial rivalry that history often likes to perpetuate. The comparison between Elaine de Kooning, Lee Krasner, and their artist husbands. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. We should begin today's episode with a brief disclaimer of sorts. By no means are either of these women, Lee Krasner and Elaine de Kooning, unknowns who made little or no mark on the art world. Both of them had serious careers before, during, and in the case of Lee Krasner, after their marriages to those two biggies. After Elaine de Kooning died in 1989, her reputation as a feminist, free thinker, and also an art critic has only risen in esteem and popularity and her work has been featured in several solo exhibitions across the globe, including a well-received exhibition of her portraits in 2015 at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Lee Krasner is probably the more well-known of the two women, and the first major retrospective of her work occurred at the Museum of Modern Art in New York back in 1984, long in the works at the museum and taking place, coincidentally, only months after Krasner's death in June of that year. Regardless, by no stretch of the imagination would you be able to call either of these artists a household name. And even some art history students who have had little training in the ways of modern art might not even be aware of either of them, or they may mistakenly assume that Lee Krasner was a man, simply based on her name alone. But surely in this newly rising tide of feminism and interest in women in the arts, we can see this as an opportunity to recoup these stories that center women and place them in the spotlight, and to question why they aren't already there in the first place. Lenore Krasner, who also went by the name Lena, was born on October 27, 1908, in Brooklyn, New York, to a family of Russian-Jewish immigrants. 
At the age of 13, she was already bound and determined to become a professional artist, and she made the decision to apply to Washington Irving High School, the only New York City public high school that allowed girls to study art at that particular period. Lenore knew that she had a bit of a challenge ahead of her. In the early 1920s, it was unusual for women to become professional, successful artists. But it was her gender that, time and again, would cause a problem for her. Early on, the works that she created in school were criticized by her art instructors because her experimental, innovative style was deemed, quote, unfit for a woman. It has been long assumed that Lenore chose to go by the moniker Lee in her professional life in order to disguise her gender and to ease her way into the boys' club that art was, and honestly, always has been. Thankfully, Lee Krasner's art education was extensive. After high school, she first studied at the Cooper Union, where she received a scholarship to attend the Women's Art School. After that, she moved on to the prestigious National Academy of Design, where she stayed for four years, between 1928 and 1932. She also took some courses at the Art Students League, the same place where both Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning would work to hone their own talents. Lee Krasner was dedicated, and she was all in with her studies, so it isn't surprising to hear that she was rewarded for it. In 1933, she obtained full-time work as an artist through the Works Progress Administration of the Federal Art Project, a visual arts program within Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal. The WPA hired hundreds of artists under this project, who collectively created more than 100,000 paintings and murals and over 18,000 sculptures in various public institutions around the country, including public schools, municipal buildings, hospitals, and so forth. And you might recall from our last episode that both Pollock and de Kooning scored positions with the WPA too. But Krasner was different. She advanced quickly to a supervisory position when other artists just dropped out. One of the artists she would end up supervising, by the way, was her own future husband, Jackson Pollock. Her work at the WPA, though, was not quite as interesting to her as the experiments with abstraction that were swirling around New York at the time. So though she was thrilled to be able to pay her bills by creating art, it appears that it was a little less than fulfilling. Still, she kept herself in the know with the art world and among those whose works did interest and excite her. She joined organizations like the Artists' Union and American Abstract Artists, becoming friendly with Arshal Gorky, Franz Klein, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, and more of the most influential movers and shakers of the day. Regardless of Lee's affiliation with all of these artists and organizations, there is still really only one name with whom she is constantly associated. And that, of course, is Jackson Pollock. As we discussed in our last episode, Pollock and Krasner met in 1936 while both worked at the WPA, but their connection wasn't tangible then, and they didn't really spark to each other until after they were reintroduced in 1942. They married three years later. But the fact that Krasner rose in prominence and esteem before Pollock did isn't actually discussed very often. Remember that it was she who introduced him to Willem de Kooning, his own artistic rival. But the frustrating thing was, and still is, that Krasner's work is too frequently not separated from that of her husband. And as such, it's almost like Lee Krasner's works get pitted by comparison with Pollock's, something that Krasner had to tackle head-on while she was still alive. About their work, she said, quote, painting is a revelation, an act of love. 
and there was no competitiveness in it. To her, they weren't in competition as fellow abstract expressionists. Instead, they were in conversation. But for the rest of the world, there was a hierarchy at play. And in traditional art history, it reads like this. Jackson Pollock, art god. Lee Krasner, supporting figure. To be fair, it is a fact that Krasner's artistic life changed considerably after her marriage to Pollock. While she never stopped painting, she wasn't quite as prolific as she had once been, and her determination to get her work shown and seen just wasn't her top priority anymore. Her husband's career was. She stepped back from her own plans to effectively manage his career. She was his biggest fan, doing her very best not only to champion his art, but to also promote it trying to secure him exhibitions and purchases, on top of just keeping their household together. Not a small feat when you were dealing with someone who is an alcoholic. Later in life, Krasner claimed that the main reason that she and Pollock never had children was because Pollock, in many ways, was too childlike himself, often relying on her in such a needy fashion that Krasner's maternal instincts were directed fully towards him. And of course, there was that drinking to contend with. Given all of these factors, it isn't too much of a surprise that Lee Krasner's art took a backseat almost totally. As she said, quote, It wasn't Jackson who was stopping me, but the whole milieu in which we lived. When their 11-year marriage ended with Pollock's death in his 1956 automobile crash, Krasner didn't rescind her promise to act as his promoter and caretaker. In fact, she spent much of the remainder of her life working to ensure his legacy but she also finally allowed herself to have the time and space to continue her own artistic journey. In the decade immediately following Pollock's death, Krasner created some knockout pieces called the Umber series, so named for their earthly tones of brown and cream. Krasner was an insomniac, so a large chunk of her works were done at night. And in choosing to work at that time, she also opted to minimize her use of color due to the lack of bright lights available to her at that particular time of day. These paintings are expressive, curvy, and more gestural than many of the works that came before. Though limited in color and tone, they seem more open and free at the same time. But when they were finally exhibited for the first time in 1959, they were slammed by critics like the influential Clement Greenberg, who chided Krasner for looking back towards the past and back towards Pollock. Some said that she was being influenced by Pollock from beyond the grave. Others said she was just trying to exercise his ghost. But either way, her work was not being seen on its own accord. From the very beginning, that knee-jerk comparison with Pollock was right there. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous.
I've been out of school for a while now, but that doesn't mean that I am done learning. There is still so much that I want to know about, and I'm sure that it is the same for you too. And that is why I am super excited to tell you all about The Great Courses Plus. It is this wonderful streaming service that I've been enjoying for the last few months, and I watch it from anywhere. I watch it on my phone, on my iPad, on my computer. I can even stream it on my Apple TV. And on The Great Courses Plus, you can learn about anything that interests you, and you can be taught by the leading professors and experts in every field. There are many topics stemming from art, literature, science, history, cooking, photography, languages, so much more. There's unlimited access to over 10,000 fascinating lectures that you can watch from anywhere on the Great Courses Plus app. So recently I started a very popular course on the Great Courses Plus called How to Draw, and I went from being able to maybe draw a stick figure at the very best to drawing a hunk of cheese. And I know that doesn't sound like much, but believe me, for a total novice like me, it was wonderful to have these step-by-step instructions on how to create a three-dimensional form, learn about shading, line, and composition, and all of a sudden come away with something that looks totally familiar and not too shabby and I want you to have that same benefit. So for a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is giving Art Curious listeners a full free month of unlimited access to their entire library. But to get started, you have to use my special URL, and that's thegreatcoursesplus.com art. So don't forget to start your free month today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com art. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com art. Today's episode of Art Curious is sponsored by Renolda House Museum of American Art, where you can find one of the nation's most highly regarded collections of American art on view in a beautiful, unique domestic setting. The restored 1917 mansion of R.J. and Catherine Reynolds, surrounded by gorgeous gardens and peaceful walking trails. As a North Carolinian, I've enjoyed numerous visits to Renolda, especially over the last few years. And I've gotta say that not only is it a place to see world-class art, but to do so in such a breathtaking and charming setting is truly a wonderful experience. Upcoming exhibitions include Dorothea Lange's America in fall 2018 and Hopper to Pollock, American Modernism in spring 2019. You can browse Ronolda's art and decorative arts collections and see what's coming up next at their website, ronoldahouse.org. That's R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-A house.org. And even better, visit in person in historic Winston-Salem, North Carolina. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. There are three plans to choose from. There's the classic plan, veggie, and the family option, which is definitely of interest to me. So with the family plan, you can make family dinners fuss-free with HelloFresh's picky eater, kid-tested and approved recipes. And on top of all of that, you can enjoy not having to plan dinner, spending money on takeout for an easy night, or worry about gathering ingredients week after week. I experienced this in person recently when I made an incredibly tasty and very easy round of poblano pork tacos with a smooth lime crema. And all of us, including my toddler, went absolutely nuts for them. And when my kid usually only wants to eat peanut butter toast, this was a huge vote of confidence. On top of all of that, I was super relaxed about having to make dinner because I didn't have to spend all night in the kitchen. All HelloFresh meals take around 30 minutes or less to get to your table. 
So spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping each week and get that time back to do more of what you love, whether that's hanging out with your family, watching a movie, or listening to a podcast like this one. Get delicious, filling meals delivered right to your door every week for less than $10 per serving, plus free shipping. And for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com slash ArtCurious30 and enter promo code ArtCurious30. Make cooking something you actually want to do when you get home from work and get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. Visit HelloFresh.com slash ArtCurious30 and enter promo code ArtCurious30. Welcome back to Art Curious. A knee-jerk reaction between comparisons with one's spouse is one that Elaine de Kooning implicitly understood. She was born Elaine Freed 10 years after Lee Krasner, on March 12, 1918. And like Krasner, she was also a Brooklynite. As the oldest of four children, Elaine frequently stepped in as a caregiver for her siblings due to her mother Mary Ellen's inattention. It reached a terrible pinnacle when, at one point, Mary Ellen was sent to a psychiatric facility for basically being an absentee parent. But Elaine Freed defended her mother throughout her life and said that much of what she provided was actually really good for the family. And one of the things that she did really well was early, loving exposure to art. Mary Ellen took her kids to museums like the Metropolitan frequently, and it made a huge impression on Elaine. She began drawing images of her classmates at school and selling them, too. After high school, she did a quick stint at Hunter College in Manhattan before dropping out to attend the Leonardo da Vinci Art School on 34th Street. There, she was taught by artists under the umbrella of the Works Progress Administration, who noticed her for her daring ambition and also her feminine wiles. We'll get back to that one in just a minute. Let's fast forward the tape a little bit to get a real sense of the importance of Elaine de Kooning's work. At the peak of her career, she participated in the 1961 edition of the famous Whitney Biennial, an influential show still going on to this day and typically presenting some of the best and brightest in American contemporary art. And her work garnered some attention, including some serious high-level interest. In 1962, she received a prestigious commission to paint an official portrait of none other than John F. Kennedy for the Truman Library in Independence, Missouri. The work is now a popular one in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and the gallery's website notes that the artist was a, quote, unorthodox choice for the task, not only because she was a female, painting in the abstract expressionist style, and highly individualistic, but also because she had executed few commissioned works in her career. But Elaine's skill at recording the essence of the subject at just a few sittings won her that job. The painting of JFK might be her most thoughtful portrait, and it is probably her most well-known work. It's remarkably different than many of the presidential portraits that came before, and there's no formality or pomp or any of the symbols or trappings of power and politics. In that way, it reminds me very much of some of the responses that we have been having to the Kahendi Wiley portrait of Obama today. Instead, in the JFK portrait, we see him seated in a green chair, legs crossed, one arm gripping the chair, and another one draped, relaxed, across his knee. He looks like he's just about to rise up and walk out straight at us. And there's such an energy and a vibrancy to the painting, due especially to the bright colors and that splashy, frantic brushwork, that we almost believe that he will walk straight out at us. 
Everything about this work screams youth, motion, the future, the now, and we are helpless to do anything but stare into JFK's eyes, which Elaine called, quote, a total surprise and the violet color of grapes. It's magnetic, and it's an undeniable showstopper of a piece of art. As she grew into her own as an artist, Elaine always defended abstract expressionism, though she was really only tangentially involved with the movement. Within her own work, she retained her interest in figuration throughout her life and in numerous series, her bullfights from the late 1950s and early 1960s, her ongoing obsession with basketball players in a series that spans 40 years, and in many other works. De Kooning brought the expressive gesture of abstract expressionism to bear on non-abstract subjects. Elaine de Kooning felt that making portraits was like falling in love. Painting a portrait is like a concentration on one particular person and no one else will do, she once said. She showed many of these works at several solo gallery exhibitions throughout her lifetime, as well as museums including the Montclair Art Museum in New Jersey and the Guildhall Museum in East Hampton, New York. She also went on to teach at several acclaimed universities in the U.S., including becoming the first distinguished visiting professor in art at the University of California, Davis, my own alma mater, where she was invited to work with none other than pop genius Wayne Thiebaud. So, if Elaine de Kooning was this successful and well-respected in the art world in her own right, why is she rarely discussed as an artist except in relation to her famous husband? This question is still one that haunts collectors, educators, and curators today. Even a 2015 article in Smithsonian Magazine made it blatantly obvious with a headline that read, quote, Why Elaine de Kooning Sacrificed Her Own Amazing Career for Her More Famous Husbands. Why, indeed. Probably she felt that she didn't have much of a choice because her talent and output certainly wasn't and isn't to blame. Brandon Fortune, Curator of an Elaine de Kooning exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery in 2015 remarked that Elaine was probably always pretty aware of her strengths, noting, quote, She said and she thought she was as good as any male artist. But, like Lee Krasner, she was simply beholden to a society that kept women at bay a little bit. Elaine Freed met Willem de Kooning in 1938 after they were introduced by a mutual friend, and apparently it was love at first sight. They got close when Willem gave drawing lessons to Elaine, and even though he was a strict teacher, she was won over by him and his work. In 1939, the year after the two artists met, she moved into Willem's studio, and they got married four years later, in 1943. They had a long marriage, one that spanned 46 years, even though they actually lived apart for almost half of that time. It seems like opposites really attracted in this case. Where she was social, he was antisocial. Where he was gloomy, she was lively, and so on. It was, at times, a tumultuous relationship. But it's possible that the taciturn Willem needed gregarious Elaine by his side to really succeed in the art world. And she knew it. As Brandon Fortune notes, quote, She knew so many people. She was at the red-hot center of everything that was happening in New York. She probably used this to her advantage, and to her husband's advantage, by often having affairs with people who could positively drive her husband's career. So, remember those feminine wiles we mentioned earlier that frequently attracted men to her? According to Smithsonian Magazine, she had flings with, quote, the critic Harold Rosenberg, 
art news editor Thomas B. Hess, and the gallery owner Charles Egan, all of whom held up their end of the deal, with Rosenberg and Hess championing Abex in general, and Willem de Kooning in particular, in their publications, and Charles Egan giving him his first solo exhibition ever. All the while, as we know, Elaine de Kooning created her own works of art. It seems that she rarely felt herself to be in direct competition or comparison with her husband. Later in life, a friend asked her point blank what it was like to work in the shadow of the great Willem de Kooning, to which Elaine gave a beautiful and loving reply. Quote, I don't paint in his shadow, I paint in his light. Not that it wasn't hard sometimes. In 1949, the Sydney Janus Gallery held an exhibition titled Artists, Man and Wife, which included Elaine and Willem alongside other power couples, Ben Nicholson and Barbara Hepworth, Jean Arp and Sophie Tauber Arp, and, of course, Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner. Elaine eventually looked back on the show with regret, saying, quote, It seemed like a good idea at the time, but later I came to think that it was a bit of a put-down for the women. There was something about the show that sort of attached wives to the real artists. And there's the rub. That separation that would keep the wives in that position as the other, always justified with modifiers like women artist instead of just artist. Elaine may have painted in Willem's light, but to the outside world, she still seemed stuck in a shadow. Just because Lee Krasner and Elaine de Kooning had a similar experience managing and promoting their husbands' careers over their own doesn't mean that they were all hunky-dory together. Though not much has been written about the women's relationship, it does seem that there was a divide between them, if not some actual animosity. According to Sebastian Smee in The Art of Rivalry, Four Friendships, Betrayals, and Breakthroughs in Modern Art, he writes that Elaine de Kooning, quote, pitted herself against Lee Krasner, because Krasner's promotion of Pollock at the expense of all other abstract artists was huge. And most articles and books kind of stop at that point, leaving the details of Elaine and Lee's interactions rather vague. In essence, these explanations or assumptions offered to us today are that these women acted primarily as support systems and defenders of their art god husbands and that it was thus their husbands who drove these women to not have a friendly camaraderie. We could say that Lee and Elaine were rivals of a sort because, simply, their husbands were rivals. People have frequently mused over the past couple of decades about whether or not these women would have had a better career or more successful careers had they not married such famous men of the art world. It's an interesting question, but one that ultimately doesn't matter for two reasons. One is that they did marry those husbands, so there are no takebacks there. But the second reason is even better and more important. They were good and successful artists in the first place. Their prominence in the art world, their commissions and sales, the respect showered on them by colleagues and critics, it's all there. The only thing that holds them back from being seen in the same light as their husbands is us. Our expectations and our assumptions. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, we're looking at the cutthroat, crazy, competitive world of British landscape painting? You'd better believe it. And that's coming up in two weeks. You are not going to want to miss this one.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research assistance by Patricia Gomez. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Creative. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. Thank you so much to the generous folks at AnchorLight again for funding this third season. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show and it is fully tax deductible. So follow the donate links on our website for more details. And as always, you can go there for images, information, and links to all of our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. And you can contact us there or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. And don't forget to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find the show. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in rivalries of art history.